Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. All right. After uh, seeing you live, I guess uh, we're back to Zoom. So, oh, well. Welcome to What Difference Does It Make? Thank you. Happy to be here. I know it's a little anticlimactic, right? I would like to see you again in person. (laughs) That wasn't a question. I'm stating I would like to see you again in person. (laughs) All right. Very good. Yeah, this was a choice that you made because we're talking to someone who's actually above our weight class intellectually. I was looking at his bio. It says, Simon Morrison is a scholar. Right there, I'm out. (laughs) But it says, Simon Morrison is a scholar and writer specializing in 20th century music, particularly Russian, Soviet, and French music, with special interests in dance, cinema, aesthetics, and historically informed performance based on primary sources, is what his Wikipedia page says. (laughs) I I don't get it, but, but he agreed to talk to us. We are talking to him because he wrote a book. He wrote a 33 and a third book on... Roxy Music's Avalon, 1982, 40 years ago. Pretty interesting stuff. And Simon will talk about how he got connected to Brian Ferry and happened to fall into this 33 and a third project, which is what we love. We love these books. These are great. So why don't we just step inside that virtual studio and start talking with Simon Morrison on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? All right. Hi. Well, hi there. So you are a professor at Princeton, but you're Russian literature, music. Curious yeah. how you get from that to Roxy Music. <laughs> the answer is it comes via the ballet. No, I grew up listening to that stuff. I uh, listened to, I absorbed in an awful lot of popular music, as well as being a student of, you know, so-called classical music and a bass player. Although, you know, I had this kind of upbringing listening to stuff that everyone was listening to but my father was really heavily into you know Richard Strauss and Wagner and and various soundtracks done by romantic composers and so I was all about music of all different kinds but when I went to school in Canada University of Toronto and McGill I got really hooked on Russian music primarily because of it's the fact that so much of it was censored and and sealed off at that time and Prokofiev who sort of became my point of focus you know he's he's a composer he's like the first introduction to serious music for a lot of people because of peter and the wolf mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and obviously Romeo and juliet and his gorgeous scores but so much of his biography and a lot of scores were just taboo they were kind of sealed up in an archive in moscow and i just got really hooked on this problem and that drove an enormous amount of, of my life 
With popular music, I mean, these two things are, it's unfortunate, it's an unfortunate cliche that a lot of people in my racket, profs, you know, at a certain point in their career, they're like, you know what, we're going to teach a course on the Beatles. (laughs) And you see them. (laughs) La, yeah, yeah. And uh, this kind of midlife crisis thing, right, that goes on. In the case, though, of Brian Ferry, whom, I mean, I listened to those albums growing up and was puzzled by them and was taken by Avalon when, when I was a, you know, 12 years old, 13 years old. That, that is a connection through Prokofiev, strangely, because I noticed that Brian Ferry, over the course of his career, done an awful lot of cover tunes, Dylan, Cole yeah. Porter, et cetera. And I got involved in a ballet reconstruction project, which was by Cole Porter. And he did a ballet about immigration restrictions in the United States called Within the Quota. And right after Trump's election, I was encouraged to mount a kind of little protest project. So I restored that score. And I was talking to one of the Prokofiev estate lawyers about my work on Prokofiev. And um, I mentioned I was doing this project. And he said, oh, uh, you should run it by Brian Ferry. And I'm like, well, why why that? I mean, I'm, that's fascinating to me. But he he knew Brian Ferry's lawyer. So he put me in touch. And the idea initially was that I was going to do this ballet reconstruction project and hand that over to Brian Ferry. And then he was going to do one of his jazz age tours, incorporating this Cole Porter ballet music with Cole Porter songs. So that was a plan. I worked up the whole thing. And then the Cole Porter estate said, no, 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 no. They were not into that at all because they didn't want the score, the ballet score, broken up and uh, interspersed with songs, which is what Brian wanted to do. So I went ahead and we staged the ballet independently with our students, but I maintained a connection with him. And then he had me write some program notes for um, a Jazz Age album, which for me was a bit of homework because I had to listen to it and actually think about his inspirations and and write these notes for him. And, And then he sent me two cases of wine which, which I don't really drink wine. I'm more of a beer person, but anyway, they got these two cases of wine and, and my wife came and looked at them. She's like, holy, you know, like she's like, they were extremely like, they were dropped off at this door and she was very happy for a few weeks with that. Bloomsbury 33 third series, uh, which does those short books of 33,333 words each. And they asked me to um, do something on Brian Ferry because they heard about this connection. And then I, I thought, well, I'll do Avalon because I was interested in the making of that one. And it's uh, production being more important than pitch or anything else kind of an aspect to it. And as a really curated sound. But because he'd given me some interviews and you know, had shared a lot of archival stuff and the studio and photographs and stuff. You know, I sent him a draft of it and he was panicked about some of the racier aspects of it. There's a kind of like soft porn quality about this. And this was some deeply offensive. Well, yes, it is. This is Roxy music we're talking about. (laughs) But the idea of calling it porno versus... He did not like that word. I don't know. Maybe I don't have the thesaurus, but to me it was like, it's, you know, it was always on the edge, right? And you don't know with him... That great line in For Your Pleasure, right? Half truth, you know, part mm-hmm. truth, part real like anything, you know, and that's that's kind of him. And it's always on that line that he, he loved to sort of toggle. So it was always pushing the boundaries, both in terms of sensual, erotic, becoming something else, exploitative. And, you know, there was always in terms of the louche kind of image, self-image that he created for himself as a kind of, you know, what is Sasha Frere Jones called him a sort of highfalutin sleaze kind of embodiment, you know, this kind of. <laughs> You know, you don't know if it's serious or not, 
And then at a certain point, that question doesn't matter, you know, because he created an image and sort of lost himself in it. It's, it's a mixture of many different things, including film noir. But I wrote that book, they've edited, you know, just complained about a few little things, corrected some facts, and it came out. And, and then all of the Roxy Music people in the forums <laughs> complain about it. <laughs> and probably a good thing because they're paying close attention to it. What I've learned in dealing with popular music fan bases is they know more than the artists themselves, right? If Stevie Nicks took a course or Brian Ferry took a course on the music of Brian Ferry that they were adjudicating the exams of, they would fail. Yeah. So, you know, they, they, these, these devotees, because they embody, they live, they do fanfic, they do all sorts of stuff. And so with me coming in and they're like, who is this guy who does Russian music? You know, kind of how dare he <laughs> write, write this, right? Yeah. And then it was always like, they didn't read the book, but they decided it was no good. That's the second move always. It's like, you know, because you know, I was an academic or because I did Russian stuff or because... I wasn't part of their community. So that kind of thing goes on as well. Have you read anything from hardcore fans like that who have accepted you or embraced you based on, on this book? There's a person who runs the one big active Roxy Music fan site, which is called Diva Roxy Music. The person who runs that, he read it and he liked it a lot. He, I actually asked to send him a copy of it because I actually, I thought he would knew a lot. And so when I started working on that book, you know, which is a short book, and I wanted to know this and that about Phil Manzanera and his own solo career and how it was intersecting with this album. I wrote to that guy and asked him for some information and, you know, and then some things he'd said on, I, that I was able to correct. And so I had a little bit of dialogue and I sent it to him and he really liked it. You want to get his blessing, like make sure. The Pope. Yeah. yeah there you go. Please, this will ensure five more copies sold. All right. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. If you got to do it. There was another book that I referenced. I don't know if you're familiar with Dylan Jones. And uh, he has a book called Sweet Dreams about the new romantic period. And yeah, he was talking about the audience and that, you know, he started to see people dressed like him and, you know, just, uh, you know, it felt like a sense of occasion to, you know, when, when they went to these shows and he, he looked in the audience and he kind of saw himself. He actually said there were devotees. We were perhaps the most cinematic looking band. Yeah. Yeah. References Bowie and Ferry as the inspiration for a lot of the new romantic period. They were, and, you know, there's also that, you know, that band Chic um, with Nile Rodgers as the front person on guitar was directly inspired by their look. So this, the Roxy Music was wonderful in terms of being a kind of real laboratory for a lot of experiments in, in the visual appearance of bands and the idea that what you're marketing isn't simply three or four chords and 16 tracks, but also this whole kind of lifestyle. You know, there's a sort of lifestyle modernism associated with right, sort of this collage aspect that they put together that, you know, inspired all sorts of people. And the sound is a collage, too, when you think about, I think, when that band started out as evinced by Brian Ferry's solo stuff. It's like some Cole Porter, some, you know, some of the blues, some Otis, you know, ready, you know, instead of sort of this combination of sound of Americana with some jazz influence. Plus he loved and absorbed a lot of soundtracks from the forties, you know, things like Casablanca and that kind of sound. And so, and then you had thrown into the mix, this Brian Eno, who was a real peacock, you know, in terms of the stage persona, <laughs> and the, you know, the sort of colorful madness of what he was doing on those early synthesizers. And I think the two of them were really antipodal and that was really productive for setting up a first album that you couldn't quite tell 
whether they were taking anything serious or whether it was all serious, mm -hmm. you know, it was very arch on a lot of levels, although it didn't succeed in the United States and Roxy Music didn't really succeed in the United States until, you know, a few albums on. It really caught on with a certain art rock scene. But cultivating an entire look, that is, you know, he, this Brian Ferry really, on one hand, he embodied, he created a persona for himself over time, which he moved into and never really left. He sort of dissolved into this sort of silent silver screen. So it's fair game for a lot of his devotees to actually assume that kind of look as well, I think. You mentioned Nile Rodgers. I mean, would you say the whole world embraced Nile Rodgers maybe more so than Brian Ferry? I thought it was the ultimate compliment. He said he was trying to be the black Roxy music. She, besides the fact that the technical quality of that band is just astonishing, yeah. you know, never mind his like that, chicka, 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 that sort of sound on the rhythmic guitar, you know, that yeah. classic sort of lick that he actually brought in and even Daft Punk, you know, and Get Lucky, mm. he produces and brings them back for the, the idea that, yeah, you have this crack band of musicians that looked glamorous. He said it was directly inspired by Roxy music and she not as eclectic, but technically better, I would say. Yeah. Niles played for Brian. He's gone and played on a couple of albums as well. Hey. I asked Brian Ferry about him. He said, well, he's quite a guy. He's, <laughs> quite... he's sort of like the personality because Brian Ferry in person is very old school. You know, he's that kind of English reserve. And when I met him, I kind of wanted to know or, or sort of glean whether that persona was something that the regular person had. You know, was, was actually his regular self was that persona. And, it kind of was. I mean, he showed up at the studio on Avonmore and he this beautiful suit and <laughs> very polished. And he, he just had a, a kind of, you know, the chironomy with the hands and the way he leaned against the post. Yeah, he comes across as very distinguished. And he's very pithy. He doesn't say very much. Um, but we had dinner with him. And, you know, it was, I think his aesthetic seems to be, on one hand, you know, love may fail, but courtesy will prevail. And there's this kind of decorum. Mm -hmm. like, like, we wouldn't, we want to do, wouldn't do something that comes across. In the book, you I mean, we're talking about the artists and you know, specifically their personalities and whatever and, and their clothing style. But specifically in 33 and a third, the, you mentioned that you're more interested in the music than the musician. I was kind of curious about that statement. You want to kind of elaborate on what that yeah, means? Um, well, that was one of those things that, you know, I was targeted for a little bit. Is Once somebody said, well, he, he insists on talking about the notes, right, and the production and um, music and text together. But Roxy Music is this whole kind of product. But I always thought that a lot of people have talked about the product and the look and the fact that if you take Roxy Music album and you contrast it with, you know, something out of the grunge era, you're dealing with two different worlds altogether, right? So I actually wanted to figure out how those songs were made because I always thought that I don't teach popular music history. I always thought if you were going to do it, you'd have to teach the history of production and producers. And so given the fact that compared to other forms of music, um, Ricardo Strauss, <laughs> you know, you're dealing with a modest syntax and you're dealing with shorter forms. But one of the things that I noticed with Brian Ferry was that he was a marvelous tunesmith, really great hooks with very minimal gestures and a voice that's a fairly narrow register. And looking at how he took his voice and the change in the sound of that voice over the course of time, which was a product of production, I wanted to actually see what happened at the end of his career in which he basically created a work of art of an album 
in which the voice is in this kind of utopian space and how that was made. So I was really interested in putting that all together. And here, you know, just talking about his look and affect and onstage persona and what he's like as a person, all of that was fascinating. But ultimately, when I was given the task of writing a book about the album, I did what the only thing I know how to do, really, which is to write about the notes and, you know, figure out how it was put together. Talking with Simon Morrison about Brian Ferry and Roxy Music and the album Avalon. We're going to take a break and be right back. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with our guest, Simon Morrison, talking about Avalon. But also check us out on social media, WDDIM podcast, and outtakes from this interview with Simon at What Difference Does It Make podcast on our YouTube channel. I was just going to mention the, the studio. They, it was recorded at Compass Point at, in the Bahamas. And it was kind of organic. I mean, they, they brought in other musicians, like the, the backup singer for the, you know, hitting those notes. Etienne, so. right? Yvonne Etienne, I think. Yes. The yeah. The one who, who gets all those, uh, those crazy high notes.
kind of like the like Pink Floyd is what I was thinking of, uh, you know, on Dark Side of the Moon. But yeah, it actually is like that. Yeah, the Great Gig in the Sky. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, did were they record in the Bahamas? Did that have an influence on the music, or how how do you think that affected what came out? They recorded the album in three different places. So they did a lot of draft stuff in the UK and London, and then they did some serious recording down there, and then they did finishing in New York, I think the Power Station, among other places. And my sense is hearing some of the draft tapes that were done in the Bahamas, what you had was Brian Ferry's process tends to be the stage when he was doing most of the songwriting, so Avalon, was he would noodle around on the keyboard and come up with something that he would put on a cassette tape and then take it down and the band would start working on it in different ways. And so it got to that stage of like rough cuts of things. And then when it went to New York, they put on a serious production where they actually got involved with like really taking, well, four track stuff, eight track stuff and actually turning it at the end. And one of the tracks on Avalon, I think it pushed us beyond 32. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a very sort of richly produced album. In terms of actually specific influences down there, because um, I did ask about that. I asked about Tara, for example, um, which is the solo piece mm-hmm. um, with English horn, uh, which was randomly caught on the live mic, he told me. Like, it was just Andy uh, was just uh, noodling around in the studio, and they just turned on the mic while he was in the live room and just caught the whole thing. And then what they did was they just took some seaside sounds from down there. Mm. well, what about the name Tara? You know, is it referring to you know, Gone with the Wind or something like that? <laughs> and apparently that was the nickname of the house down there. And, you know, I had nothing beyond that. So that was one of those instances where I think the one track that actually sounds like something that might have come from there is that instrumental. You listen to that solo, which is a lovely solo. It's very much like he's just working out an etude. He's going up and down scales and doing arpeggios and this and that and with a beautiful tune on top. And it just came to him and they just they just turned it on. So you can imagine Ferry's just sitting at the soundboard working on some other track and then they just turned it on and caught that. The other things that I heard, there's um, one of the most beautiful songs that they've is called True to Life. Oddly, for somebody who seems so lyric-driven, the demos of that, and they floated around online for a while before I actually wrote to Millie Thompson, who manages him. And I said, by the way, do you know that, <laughs> you know, for Mr. Polish, that some very unpolished stuff is floating around out there? <laughs> I was happy to listen to it, but and they got it all pulled down. <laughs> but it's it's still up, but the, the demos are still up on YouTube. Not, still, oh, it's been up there for the chords are marked down and just, you know, and then some reharmonizations. And it was so odd to hear the melodic line was developed ahead of the words. I always thought he was text driven, but it was not the case. So it gets to seven and think of nothing, living in darkness. And the diamond lady, well, she's not telling, don't even know her name. It's amazing, times change. Now you're talking, but where's your soul? 
When you first hear Avalon, it, you don't think of, oh, this is the end of the band, blah, blah, you know, like uh, in, in the moment. But then, you know, like it starts off with more than this. And, you know, it, it sounds like he knew this, you know, when you look at it, he's saying, I could feel at the time there was no way of knowing, you know, it was fun for a while. People can interpret that as like, okay, that, you know, he knew this was the end of the band, but did he? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I think that there were tensions within the band after the Siren album, which was the fifth one. The last track on that album is just another high, mm-hmm. which also seemed like a kind of swan song. And then after that album was done, there was a hiatus and Paul Thompson, the drummer, left, although he's part of the, the tour that's coming up. And then they put out three more records, which became more and more sublated, more and more about his kind of uchu or whatever you want to call it, you know, quality. They put out Avalon and part of the calculation and part of the Bahamas and New York experience was actually to try and create a record that would actually work in the United States so that somewhere in between rumors and the Eagles mm-hmm. Hotel California or something, <laughs> this would fit, right? Right. And it did succeed. And then suddenly they had to deal with the fact that they were a huge act and were doing big venues in the United States. 14,000, I think, was the top. And they toured around and Manzanera was not happy with the fact that this album had taken off but during the process of mixing it a lot of the guitar was taken out <laughs> you know mm-hmm. so that with that opening track right more than this the solo at the end of that track is like <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know it's like two notes three times right it was and this is somebody who would really could really develop you know long passages and the grind of that tour which isn't the kind of grind that you know other bands took but it was a grind for them and they actually, they shook hands before getting on the Concord in New York back to London. And it was sort of like handshakes all around. And that was fun while it lasted. And they, they, that was, they concluded the end of the tour. It was over. They went back into the studio to see if anything would happen. A couple of years after that, it was just one day and happened more and nothing really happened after that. Since then, well, it got more and more impossible for them to actually think about coming back together. So I do, th- I think that, there was something about the fact that he had taken over the group so extensively. He was so image conscious that even on the video for Avalon, and it's a video that apparently he hates, but it's that kind of odd somewhere in some mansion somewhere with the folk. Oh, I love and, that uh, shot. <laughs> he's dancing with this model who was, was born on the exact day, same day as I am. So I actually wrote to her about oh, yeah. the experience of her doing that music video. You know, they actually used a, a model, you know, guy in a tuxedo who actually played drums. He wasn't at all one of the drummers with the band. You know, he was so interested in a certain look. You know. So that kind of thing, I think, to some degree, I don't know if it distanced him from the others, but it was very much his vehicle. Well, for the videos, for someone who's so visually conscious, um, the videos are very dry. Avalon was probably a little bit better, but, you know, more than this, you, do, you don't yeah, get a lot from the videos. 
I don't know if it was that stage and I mean, look at you, look at 80s videos and it can be pretty shabby, but there's not a lot going on in those. And it's mostly just him posing in different ways. You know, I, I, of course, I can't really ask him about that, but the sort of odd dancing that, that goes on. Yes. Those, you know, <laughs> no, I agree. Something yeah. kind of like, it's something awkward about it. Like, although he embodies this image, it's not organic as, as the word you use. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not natural for him to this is not somebody who actually trained in ballroom dancing. You know? so, His image is um, smoother. Yeah, it's, it's like the sound is one thing, but beautiful in person, and obviously had the great hair and everything is that. But I think that actually being on camera actually was something we got pretty self-conscious about, and and always the memories of doing the videos it was always something we thought it was very dreadful. Yeah. However, the live show, you know, like I watched, I watched the the high road yesterday, you know, from '82. And it's just brilliant. You know, he's, he's relaxed. He's moving around. He's got, you know, of course, he's got the white dinner jacket on. And eventually the, the tie comes off and he's stripping down. It's just like, welcome to my party. You know, it's, he's loose. And uh, that's what people, I think a lot of people think of, you know, when you think of Roxy music, like, okay, here's the, you know, we're, we're at the party. Party's winding down, you know, type of situation. And, you know, that's, he's, he's your host. Yeah. Well, he, he comes out and on one hand, it's like, seems like a reticent shy person and then on stage okay he can actually find his persona but then he actually interacts very little with the audience he doesn't say very much to them it's like just something like it's great to be back in new york again or it's great to be in la and two or three things that's it so there's not a lot of give and take that space seems to be his own and yet you know on camera in interviews in general he's he's been very reticent when i started corresponding with him it was like you know you get an email would say i like cole porter man a few words you spoke to brian did you speak to andy or phil for the book what i did with um andy mckay was in poor health so i didn't communicate with him what i did with phil manzanero was uh, a lot of email questions back and forth uh, he didn't want to do interviews but he was happy to answer all sorts of questions so as long as i had a decent question and he was, he was happy to actually provide it and he also corrected some of the text so that was a correspondence. And then with some of the other session musicians, Newmark, the drummer, a lot on email. He's actually very garrulous, so he was happy to talk about all sorts of stuff. He actually talked about, like, there's a B-side of the title track, Always Unknowing, I think it's called. Follow the morning star But there's no sense in always And you can't tell whether the drumming is real or limb machine. Hmm. And I actually asked him and, and uh, he himself couldn't, couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. As you uh, touch on the musicians don't know it's the, uh, it's the fans that know. They do. And, and he actually said that he kept, keeps nothing in his place of the band, nothing memorabilia, nothing. He's not in- interested at all in nostalgia. And so it's all just whatever he has in his head. So mm. he talked about a lot of stuff. 
a wonderful guy to talk with, really, and an amazing drummer. So. For the celebrating the 50 years of Roxy, did they reach out to uh, Mr. Eno and see if he's interested in playing? My understanding is that he's in general not interested in contributing, but, uh, you know, he has a good relationship with Brian Ferry. Mm-hmm. And he's contributed to some of the solo albums, but he just doesn't do this kind of thing anymore. You quoted him in the book, and it must have been from interviews, from old interviews, about how he felt warmly towards the band had he had no issues but he just knew it was his time to go it was either him or brian and it was brian's band i think so um when you listen to brian Eno's contributions to those first two albums it's you know a lot of just creating sounds off of the keyboard and brian you know settled into this wonderful role as being you know one of the pioneering minimalists and also doing wonderful production work and doing these incredible ambient sounds and i think that when i asked ferry about this the influence of Eno. His, his contribution to the sound remained even though he was no longer there because that aesthetic that he developed of those yeah. textures, you know, and when you actually go through a song like Avalon, you know, it's tiny, the hook. It's very minimal and it's all about this atmosphere that's created. What I think Ferry managed to do was take something of that aesthetic and, you know, put it into a popular context. So he has always been there. And particularly on the series of solo albums that Ferry made after Avalon, in which he's still working with that sound, trying to perfect and perfect and perfect it almost obsessively. It's more and more this conjunction between the two of them. They were dichotomous on the first Roxy Music album, and then strangely, there's something about the sound, that, the aesthetic that's coming together. All right. So I think probably about around the same age as us. As you mentioned, this is Avalon is the was your your entry. What was it younger just by what you said? Uh, Yeah. But so how did you discover Roxy Music? How did it come about that? uh, Oh, here's an album that I might be interested. Did you go specifically to find this or was it like this cover that was like, what's happening in this (laughs) this (laughs) this photo? No, you know what it was? It was. The first album I got of theirs was Flesh and Blood. So it was the one before. Oh, okay. And I went by a record store and that opening cover track, yeah. Midnight Hour, yeah. I that one, two, three. And I was like, wow, what a great hook. Mm-hmm. So I was just attracted and got that album. One, one, two, three, four, five. I'm gonna wait till the midnight hour That's when my love will in down I'm gonna wait till the midnight hour When there's no love that album so much flesh and blood the aesthetic the cover everything you know um this sort of fantasy space that it opened out in different ways did you do some digging like i mean it was hard for us to discover who this band is you know back then we had magazines but there weren't too many articles on on the band they were a mystery <laughs> they were a total mystery and what i did i grew up in canada was i just went to some of these more offbeat kind of record stores and they had japanese imports mm. vinyl and there was like a lot of the early Roxy music stuff was theirs. And these albums were a fortune. 
Yes. That time, like, so, but I, I was obsessed and collected and collected and was, I actually was somewhat disappointed. And this goes against the grain of people who grew up with the band and, you know, he started in 1972 mm-hmm. and it was the opposite for me. So I started off with this beautiful produced sound and then I got the earlier records and it was more, it was like this kind of unraveling where you just, you lost 32 tracks and mm-hmm. you gave her down to eight, you know, or 16. And the production just wasn't there and the voice, you know, sounded thin and it, it was eclectic and things didn't really have that kind of formlessness and, you know, that sort of place of, you know, that lava lamp kind of, you know, beneath behind the beaded curtain sound that they actually produced at the end wasn't there. And then when I got to the first album, it just seemed to me just bizarre. You know, this, this <laughs> still is. Dark, still is. They put together. Still is bizarre. Mm-hmm. And so it was a reverse for me going back to the beginning. But so it was flesh and blood, and then I gradually collected all the other ones, and then Avalon came out, and then I was all about that. So I just grabbed it and loved it. And in the meantime, I also picked up some of his solo albums, where you actually, I think, get a better sense of where he's, you know, I don't think the word true self is, but kind of where his more emotional engagement is. There's a track on one of the albums called When She Walks in the Room with the String Quartet. Really one of the greatest songs probably ever written. That, right, that's what you say in the book. <laughs> yeah, I do. And uh, <laughs> I see I remember the book. Because it's like, when she walks in the room, then, you know, it's time to go. Like, she leaves, right? And, and the texture of the song just dissolves. And it's just a beautiful move. And it just has to kind of reconstitute itself as a sort of memory of this. And I, I just think it's really a wonderful song. When she walks in the room, then you know Why your day says it's late, time to go And you know you can't leave, you must stay And um, it's the production there is, it works beautifully. The chorus that comes in is a great hook at the end. It builds in a wonderful way. I just think it's it's a masterpiece, that song. So maybe I'm alone in thinking that. But, <laughs> um, I, just, I just think, and there is like, you get a sense of whatever the inspiration was for that. He was truly invested in it. So a lot of Avalon is like an exploration of texture. It's like Stanley Kubrick's last film, you know, Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. which makes no sense, except as a draft of something. But then you watch the colors and the camera work, you're just seeing and exploring some sort of texture in this film. And, <laughs> and I think there's something about Avalon that's like that. Yeah, it creates a mood. You know, you could put it on at, uh, you know, at the end of a party or at the, at the start, or, you know, it just, you know, it, it depends on, on someone's mood. It can, it kind of, uh, it's... It's adaptable. (laughs) Some of our generation came into Roxy Music with Avalon. So at the end, so people going back to the beginning, you know, feel maybe different about the music, but still it's, it's definitely not necessarily what you would expect. Yeah. And uh, Avalon is about desire among it's, there's a somewhat ennui. There's a sort of tired nature to it. You know, the party's over, right. Quality those textures they just this this space of like a kind of desire that music can capture that that words can't and 
you know, us talking can't, uh, the visual arts can't, but it's just there, <laughs> just in this realm. And, and desire and human desire is, it's unquantifiable in a way. And so this wonderful sort of exploration of desire in different ways that that album is, you know, you wanted more of it. And then when you find out that actually, no, this was actually a real rock and roll band, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the high road is that actually when they went on tour and that came out, that EP, you were like, wow, this is a rock and roll band. You know, and they were more and more a rock and roll band as it had unspooled back in time. Yeah. So, and the beginnings of it were, you know, these art school kids who benefited from the fact that after World War II, suddenly there was a flourishing of government investing in the art schools and they could all go to it and explore things in different ways and break down and challenge class and all of that. So that's where they came out of. So let's talk about the cover and the, there were like four people, I was looking at my, I got the album and it was, uh, yeah, one, two, three, yeah, four people covered by Ryan Ferry, Neil Kirk, Anthony Price, and Peter Seville. As we were talking about the theme of the album, I don't get that from the cover. <laughs> what do you mean? You, you don't get <laughs> uh, Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, you look at the cover and you say, well, that's not. What you you can't like. I've heard about you can't judge a book by its cover and I think that this might be uh, kind of relevant this as must well. Be a really sensual album from the cover. Yeah, you get you get Arthurian legend, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm thinking Game of Thrones. I'm thinking you know <laughs> something. Well, that, that is his wife, right? The deceased wife is is on the cover there. What I know is that the idea of the cover was driven by Brian Ferry, who was up in that area. On an early morning, he actually decided that this would make, might be good for a photo shoot. And so they set up a photo shoot there. And there's a couple of pictures in the book of them doing that photo shoot. Once they had, you know, endless photographs taken in different ways, they took it to the studio. And then the other people involved, Anthony Price was involved in the first cover. And so it was always a matter of running it by him and running it by other people for their opinions. And so the image was tweaked in different ways. And the tweaking is like, if you, if you look at the cover of Flesh and Blood, that one, part of the tweaking of that cover was whether or not to have a strip, you know, up and down the side. And that was there for a while and it was taken out. And in the font, for example, on the Roxy Music album, I'm not a font expert exactly, but the Roxy Music Avalon album has a specific font go. at the top. Yeah, and initially that album had a bar at the top and down the sides to resonate with the colors of those models <laughs> on it. And um, there's also, all three of them were originally on the front. So there's versions of it that different flavors. With Avalon's cover, uh, the font was played with, the light was, was played with as well between them. So it was his idea. He arranged the photo shoot. It was his wife there in that position. What it has to do with the rest of the album? The thing is, you can, you know, it just opens up a space where you, you kind of wonder what it's about. And that's, I think, the, the idea is. I, I love the album cover. We spent a lot of time just staring at these covers. I mean, he, he, you know what it is with him? This is what it is with him. I noticed this actually on track lists and documents. One interesting detail about the Roxy Music song, they wrote notes about the song, what they wanted the song to be. So there's actually a paper trail. And for a lot of them, he would actually write things like troubadour, romantic troubadour sound. One of the things I think he always liked the idea of being as a sort of 20th century version of a medieval troubadour, you know, courtly love figure, right? So that you're singing, and this is where he, he's talking about the 
courtly love tradition of Provençal France, where you have somebody who is the son of a baker or a chimney stoker <laughs> chasing some noble woman around and singing songs, and eventually she hires them and they go on trips together, right? And it's all, a, I'm not worthy, the beautiful woman kind of aesthetic. That's kind of a lot of what he's about, I think. And also, as I was watching the concert from 82, he opens with the main thing, and they play Avalon, and that was it uh, from, you know, they, they played the rest of the Roxy Music catalog, but I was su- actually surprised that they weren't really pushing the, this album because, I mean, they didn't even play more than this. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. It was, that was the live show and how it was developed and what the rest of the band wanted to play was at odds with him just running the album. Was that Phil's input? Like, if I'm going to play, if I'm going to be on stage, I need to do something. And Yeah. I mean, obviously they work together. They still work together. Where they come from as artists... Uh, they are completely different uh, people. His primary influences are Latin American. He has done wonderful stuff. Guantanamera, that single, you actually can track down that video of him playing that online. It's just amazing music. really absorbed a lot of those sounds and there is very little trace of that anywhere in Roxy music. I think there was a lot of times in which he wanted to bring that in and he was never able to do that. And at least on stage on those tours, he could showcase some of his playing because he's a really interesting guitarist. So, you know, wonderful sounds and in tune, which is great. (laughs) And technically, you know, very proficient. Yeah. And just some of the timbres that he chooses. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it was an opportunity for him to showcase himself. Occasionally on the road, Phil Manzanera would perform as a break, uh, one or two of the instrumental tracks from that great album, Primitive Guitars. Mm-hmm. Really wonderful stuff on that album. And I think that, you know, I'm hoping that that, that actually is part of this, this run as well, because that's a great album. And it come, came out just after Avalon. As you referenced in Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stone review, Kurt Loder, you know, he talked about uh, Avalon and said Phil doesn't have a lot to do. And then he reviewed Phil's solo record as well. Like, OK, here's what he here's what he is capable of doing. And it's really good. Because he said yeah. he did say he was underutilized. Yeah, he's underutilized. But I think the idea of certainly with the solo albums, with Brian Ferry, recent solo albums, you know, it's like 30, 40 musicians involved in those records. And you don't know who's playing what at a certain point, right? It's so produced. And I think that that's what he was going for. It's just this blend. And on stage, when I saw him at the Greek Theater, and I also saw him at the Bowl, you know, on tour, as well as in New York last time, a couple of times he came around, 
And still, that onstage band, they sounded seamless. You couldn't tell like, who was doing what at times. It was really wonderful. I think that that part for him is actually really interesting, the idea of actually taking away the distinctiveness of the sound associated. Well, that's Phil Manzanera's sound, and that's him doing a break, and he's going to stand out. But it was all about everything just being part of the same texture, you know. You know, there's a lot of fans of guitar people who are really interested in Phil Manzanera and are going to want to hear him. Whereas uh, Andy Mackay is far more of a kind of easy listening kind of. One of my first jobs was working at The Wave. It was like smooth jazz. And uh, Avalon was, it, it was, we played a lot of that. That's how it was like my injury. Like, oh, okay. It was kind of, okay, I got it. They could still seem cool by playing Roxy music, but, uh, you know, because it, it did have those smooth jazz elements you played, to it. You played Avalon at the smooth jazz place? Yeah. <laughs> had a job at a classical music place with like literally Shakespeare, Beethoven and company kind of place. And you know, we were supposed to put on the greatest hits of the Baroque, but I put on Avalon. Oh, nice. <laughs> and the owner would come in like, what the, you know, why are you putting this? But I sold a few copies. For <laughs> Perfect. Music store. You know, I, I don't, I actually personally don't find there's much of it. You know, I don't like this distinction between popular and so-called serious music, you know, given all the influences. If Brian Ferry thinks he's a troubadour, troubadours are what you teach in your first couple of lectures in medieval music. So there you go. Yeah. There's one line in more than this where I don't know if he's referencing Dylan at all, you know, fallen leaves in the night, who can say where they're blowing, you know, blowing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, is it blowing in the wind? Who can say, I don't know. Is that, do you think that was a deliberate Dylan reference? Yeah. He, um, you know, he put out um, a book, Brian Ferry called lyrics. It's, uh, he's got an essay at the beginning about his lyric writing process. The idea that things mean two or three different the references go in two or three different directions. That mm -hmm. was actually the start of the career, and actually that plays all the way through to the end. So absolutely, that's there. Like that song early on, Virginia Plain, right? It's it's the cigarettes. It's, it's a place, Virginia. It's also a person. You know, it's that that kind of two or three. He's always of the idea. This is where his modernism, I think, is really wonderful it's like he likes the idea of a sort of language as, as kind of as something you play with like clays and also the idea that of triple and double entendre so that if you take a word and you look it up the meaning of it what you see is other words you know mm. and so there's no real thing there i think for him all of these sort of plays of possibilities so that in the first album even the title some of them were coded right 2hb to Humphrey Bogart, mm. right? I didn't catch that. And then there's B.O.B., the Bob, which is the Battle of Britain, you know? So there's these kind of codes all the way through. And so maybe there's something about even the Avalon cover is kind of inscrutable, but, you know, a lot of the lyrics are meant to be that way. Personal favorite on, on Avalon you like to go personal to? Personal favorite track on Avalon? Yeah. Um, True to Life is absolutely my favorite track on that record. So against the seven and think of nothing but living in darkness And the diamond lady where she's not dead Don't even know her name It's amazing, times change In days of old But imagination will leave you standing Out in the cold Dancing, sitting, now you're talking But where's your soul? 
texture of that is wonderful that opening reverberation the synthesizer which he loved so much that he used on another solo track um, is wonderful and that texture of it i just think is this, this the ultimate dreamscape so i'd say true to life is the song that i love the most on that record and the main to the opening track too um, mostly because of the karaoke version of it that's done in lost in translation okay. if you know that right, right? yeah oh, how beautiful that is though no. Murray, when he does that in that karaoke space right is it in tokyo it's like permanent jet lag kind of space and he just sings that and he doesn't really have the pitch and he's just sort of searching for the pitches but it's all it's like it's ironic it's arched but the pain is real nonetheless you know <laughs> and, and and i think that that's that is to some degree, romantic irony. And I think that that's Brian Ferry too. It's like, yeah, he's not taking this really seriously and he can't take it seriously, but nonetheless, the pain is real. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Harris. Thanks, this is hard. I could feel at the time there was no way of knowing Fallen leaves in the night Who can say where they're blowing As free as the wind Hopefully learning Why the sea on the tide Has no way of turning More than this you know there's nothing more than this Tell me one thing more than this Ooh, there's nothing And I, I just thought that performance is tangential to uh, Roxy music, but there's always a sort of, there's some of those big songs early on that are like, the jam of a party and then the after party. Avalon is just all after party. Certainly just dispense with it because the thing it wants to be is like the ennui, the melancholia, the idea that that didn't work out. You know, the hookup was a mess, all of this kind of stuff. It was stumble. It was terrible. It was a disaster. It was boring. It was horrible. I loved it kind of thing. Right. And I think that that, that that quality of Avalon, it's like it's all after party, but it's about resonance. So it's the idea that there's been some experience that leaves some sort of trace and it's been a little bit disappointing and you still have the longing and you want to reclaim it. And it's a bunch of things like that. And um, the problem in, even though it's technically what I do for a living, writing about music is <laughs> the problem of that is by definition, the art form is all about doing things that words can't do. So what exactly, what exactly am I doing writing about these songs besides just understanding what a moment this was in the development of production technology? And what a self-indulgent experiment it is for a pretty short album. It's only 32 minutes where they went to all of these studios to produce these 32 minutes of perfection. I think that, you know, on one hand, he wanted fundamentally to make something that was beautiful in and of itself. And whatever meanings you invest in it, that's for you and that's for us to do. And that's fine. And at the same time, this was somebody, if there's a genuine self there at the heart of it all, I, he said once that the life was very lonely. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And that being in this group and over the years meant that he lost a lot of what the likes of us have or can have in terms of personal lives. There's a slight despondency, I think, that's built into it there. So it's a sort of strange relationship to fame. All right. Well, speaking of relationships, I, I'm always curious. You dedicated the book to Paul Dingle. Can you tell me who that is? <laughs> uh, he's an old buddy of mine who he teaches in Canada. He always teased me. Um, when I was a kid for really being into Brian Ferry. And he actually was a musician himself, a very good piano player. And he wrote a song called Everyone's Pretentious. <laughs> and, uh, and he sent it to me as a cassette tape. I had lost touch with him since my college days and only got back to, you know, reached out to him a few years ago. We used to listen to this stuff and Brian Ferry came to New York and I invited Paul down from Sault Marie, Canada come down and see that show so we went to the show and we had a great time together and it was you know you know somebody had for 35 years really and it was a great time and uh you know we've gotten old and all of that great stuff so then it was right after that that i got the commission to do this this project so dedicated. look at that everything else dedicated to my child so. yeah <laughs> all right well Take go enjoy your time. your summer break okay all right thank you very thank much you. all right bye-bye thanks simon all right, I, th- I think we handled ourselves okay. We uh, were talking with an Ivy League professor, Simon Morrison. I was a little intimidated at first, but uh, he's a, he's a, he's a decent guy, <laughs> a music fan. <laughs> he's also a music fan, so you yeah. know. So how could we? We couldn't go wrong. There's nothing. We, I I felt like we held our own against him, don't you? Oh, he would kick our ass intellectually. Okay, so it sounded like we held our own. It sounded like, yeah, we're just, uh, we're, we're state school people, not... Not Ivy League. Not Ivy not League. Not Princeton material. No, I know, I still, uh, I still have hangups about that. But that's, a, that's another issue I will, uh, I will talk to my therapist about. That's the end of our podcast today. <laughs> we had a, were you a Roxy Music fan? I never even asked you, Holly. Did you like Roxy Music? You know I'm a Roxy Music fan. I think that, which I neglected to say before, going forward in Brian Ferry's career was more Avalonish to me. I was always about the uh, sophisticated pop of Brian Ferry. The weirdness threw me off, but now I embrace it. So, and my lifestyle as well. That's what I. That's how I live my life. I embrace the weirdness. All right. So our philosophy is that we have an episode every week, every Friday. We come up with something. Something different, something unique. So please subscribe and you can follow us on social media. Please do WDDIM podcast and what difference does it make on YouTube where you will find outtakes from this interview and all of our others. Love it. Okay. Until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.